you're supposed to send two nurses or one physician and one nurse with a person who's going to ICU, but they sent one nurse by herself. We get on there because they thought I was okay. I coded on the elevator. I stopped breathing. Welcome to From the Ground Up, where we talk to reptile keepers and breeders about all things cold-blooded. Sit back and have a beer with us. Well, some of you are driving. If you're driving, keep your hands tended to and enjoy the show. Welcome to From the Ground Up podcast. So I wanted to thank everyone who participated. I think I may have mentioned it last week, but I want to say it again because our Black Friday sale as well as our Cyber Monday sale was a success. And I thank everyone who pitched in for that. And it was nice to see your support. Um, I'm working on a different project that we're going to kind of make shirts that go to a certain um, charitable Oh yeah, I don't want okay. to spill the beans yet, but we're <laughs> yeah, working we on it. Yeah, we didn't spill the beans to me to either. You either cool. So, but so hopefully you guys aren't all t-shirted out because I made the t-shirts like eleven dollars. So hopefully you're good. But um, what else do we have to get out there? Um, thank you to everyone who uh, saw us at the Hamburg show this weekend. Oh. Obviously, we weren't vending it, but we went there and met a lot of you guys. Um, and those are great first introduction to Hamburg and <laughs> the PA shows. Yeah, we'll keep. We need like a whole podcast to talk about Hamburg. Hamburg. I think. I don't know. It might get a little too negative. <laughs> um, we may not want a whole show, but just thank you to everyone <laughs> who came out. Um, yeah, it's always amazing how many people come up and say, "Hey, we listen to the podcast," so we really, or really we saw appreciate you on that. YouTube or anything like that. Yeah. So that's great to know we have people out there. Like, we're not just talking to a screen for our own fun. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. I think that's it for us. <laughs> Fortcitypythons.com. No, we, we do that at the end. Our, our, shipping, our shipping window's closed, so there's no animals going anywhere. Right. So, and that's pretty much it. So today, our guests are Kristen Wiley and Jim Harrison of the Kentucky Reptile Zoo. So, Jim, Kristen, can you guys give us a little overview of what you guys do? Uh, sure. Um uh, so, I mean, some people are familiar with us, I think, because they know we do things with venomous snakes. Uh, primarily, we provide venoms to people at pharmaceutical companies or universities who are doing some sort of usually biomedical research with the venom. Uh, we also have an exhibit that's open to the public. We do outreach programs, and I know a lot of folks do that kind of thing, uh, with animals to schools and camps and whoever wants us. And then we also, uh, here in the last maybe five or six years, we've tried to get a little bit more involved in some direct conservation work as well with snakes. So we can talk about that a little bit more too, um, if you want. So that's, I think that's kind of a brief overview. We probably have somewhere around 1,600 in between 16 and 1700 individual animals uh, right now at our facility. And the vast majority of those are venomous snakes of one sort or another. So that's kind of, kind of what we do. And I see you guys, I always see you guys post up, you know, snakes hatching and venomous snakes hatching. Are those animals that you breed just to get more animals to milk in the future? Yeah. 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 So we don't, we don't sell anything. We're not allowed to under our permit system system that we have in the state so we're not allowed to get any kind of monetary gain from them we're allowed to send them to other institutions but we can't sell them so we kind of just pick the animals that the projects we're going to be working with 
a lot of cobras and a lot of mamba venom is used for pain medication research to replace opiates. So we're breeding a lot of cobras, a lot of Indian cobras. I think I paired up 36 pairs the other day. So um, yeah, it, it, you know, one time we were doing a project with uh, Kahuthia venom and we had over a thousand uh, yeah, individuals. It was crazy. Yeah. And the most, the most I've ever had animals at one time of one species to extract from was I did over a thousand uh, Malayan pit vipers in one day extraction. So we had, we had a ton of Malayan pit vipers at one time for stroke research. Well, I'm curious, kind of, how do you pretty much perform this basically marathon of <laughs> snake milking and keep your focus that whole time? <laughs> That's a really um, good question. <laughs> I, I, I've been doing it for 43 years. And I, you know, it sounds weird, but I, I started in the martial arts when I was like, you know, 15. And I turned pro kickboxer when I was 17. So I learned focus really fast when people were punching me in the face. So I tell people it's... Uh, Does that wake you up a little bit? Yeah, it wakes you up a little bit. Um, I tell people it's like having a new opponent every couple seconds. You just have to be aware and not assume anything. I had somebody from CNBC here interviewing me, and the lady asked me, she goes, uh, what do you think of when you open up the cage? And I'm like, I don't think of anything. I have empty mind. She goes, what do you mean? I'm like, I don't assume that snake's going to do the same thing it did last time. If I do, I'm going to be caught flat-footed. I'm going to get bit. I've been doing this. I average 600 to 1,000 extractions a week. And I've been envenomated 11 times. And so I've made mistakes. I mean, I, you know, I'm human. So I'm not, I'm, nobody's perfect. <laughs> and I, it's just like with the martial arts. I've never met a master who said he was a master. <laughs> all, the ego, you know, goes with it. <laughs> so, part of the trade. Part of the trade, yeah. And, you know, I, I just go in there and do it. I, I avoid people right before I extract because I don't want distractions. And then, you know, normally the only people I talk to is Kristen and whoever's helping me and that's it. Afterwards, now, talks a lot. I mean, like, sorry for the, the most obvious question ever, but why are you willing to risk your life to do this? <laughs> well, your lives, really. there's, two, there's two things that people can do with their life. They can sit on their butts and do nothing or they can contribute something to society. I had the ability, because I have a small pension from the police department, to sit on my butt and not work. But I've decided to donate my time and extract venom to save lives. I've, I don't like to see people suffer. I, you know, I was a paramedic also, and I worked in a hospital. I worked in a coroner's office when I was 16. So I started doing autopsies, assisting in autopsies when I was 16 years old. Whoa. Saw, There's not like requirements to like nah, do that. Not at the time. I think we're nah, not, like, not, not legally. Probably. You got to remember. <laughs> yeah, you got to remember back in the day when I was doing it, it, it was different. Um, a lot of things have changed, but I'm a dinosaur. But, you know, it. It's one of the reasons I am an expert witness in court cases on snake bite is because I can review autopsies. And we actually had somebody from the Innocence Project who thought he could get off, get out of life in prison. Oh, is this by, the thing that I got in the mail? Yeah, yeah. She got a, she got some, they contacted us and we said, well, send us the, the autopsy and everything else. Well, they didn't send it registered. They just sent it in the mail. You tell the story. Oh. Well, so 
I, I frequently go horseback riding at night. And when I come home, our mailbox is out, outside. And so I'll stop and get the mail. And then we have a gate that I have to get out of the car and open the gate. And so I had gotten the mail one evening. It was dark. I pulled up to the gate. And a lot of times, I'll just kind of flip through the mail in the car, you know, as you do. And there's this giant envelope. And so I'm like, oh, what's this envelope? And I didn't recognize the name on it or anything. So I opened it up. I mean, it's like this thick. And I pulled it out. And the, on the very, like the very top piece of paper, it, it's not a letter. It's not anything. It's a photograph, a full page photograph. And I'm standing there or sitting there in a car looking at it. And I can't figure out what it is because it's just bizarre looking. And you know how like those magic eye photos, it suddenly like snaps into focus. This is what happened. And I realized that it's a photo of a dead body that's like in a bunch of weeds. And it was the photo of how they found the body. And she was bloated. It was not a pretty picture. Yeah. And so I'm sitting there in the dark at the gate, like with this, you know, picture of a dead body. And it just was very creepy. And <laughs> you would think if you're going to send someone photos of a dead person, which they didn't tell us they were going to send, but this was, you know, a couple weeks later. It was but pretty far something was in there. <laughs> yeah. Warning. <laughs> you know, don't let it just anyone look at these. Like, be prepared. At least have the lights on, you know, something. But no, it's just like a bunch of pictures. But and, it, it turned out that you tell the story. Yeah, I, I, reviewed the, I reviewed the autopsy. I looked at all the autopsy paid uh, pictures and everything else. And the person was really reaching for something. He said there were two puncture wounds that were unidentified on the leg. They weren't snake bite. Didn't even come close. There were just two little dots. Just like, two little dots. From a stick or who knows. But there was reticulation in the eyes and there were fingerprints on the throat. So, and there was water water in the lungs. So he, he whoever killed him, I couldn't say whether this was the person that killed him or not, because all I got was the autopsy to review and for, you know, cause of death and stuff. So I wasn't to pass judgment or anything like that. But there was somebody took that person's life. It wasn't a snake. Yeah. yeah. Now, how often do you have to do things like that? That's not part of the job. Well, often I think. Yeah, it's not that often. No, it's not that they're, often. they're not pleasant things there's been i know it's probably like one every several years it's not real often thankfully um but Uh, there are things like that we were contacted about a a famous case and it was right after i had my one hip replaced and i refused to do it because it involved children and Mm -hmm. i was already not a good mindset myself and i didn't want to deal with it so i i referred it to somebody else but you know i don't that's one thing i hate seeing you know suffer as children so that's kind of the other reason i do this is you know when we go to different countries and stuff we um you know we try to help make it safe for the kids you know and part of that's education education is a bigger part of it than the anti-venom you know getting people to change their ways is hard and some of that is the safest way for them to live is to change their way yeah now what kind of things, because you said before we were talking before the show that Kristen was just over in India. I mean, what have you guys done, whether it's overseas or in the country, to kind of educate people? And what are you guys working on? Uh, I mean, obviously, we do our outreach programs. Um, but the, we speak to medical societies. We, yeah, we, do, we, all do, kinds of stuff. we do snake bite uh, treatment talks. I've done a whole bunch this fall to various EMT groups around our state. Um, 
I think just like one person got a hold of the news that we would do it and now I've, <laughs> I've done a bunch of them. But um, so kind of the, the neatest things, at least overseas that we've done that are probably interesting to people is we, um, we went to, to St. Lucia uh, a couple of years ago and uh, we were contacted because they are working on creating a conservation plan for all of their wildlife in San Lucia. That's actually really impressive, the job that they're doing. They're working with Flora and Fauna International um, and they're, uh, the first day we were there was like meetings and I was like, oh man, this is gonna be horrible. But we were actually really impressed with all the stuff they'd done. And they've got their kids there, like they understand, they're teaching in the school that they rely on the forested part of the island for their fresh water. And so that's pretty well understood actually in the communities. And so what we were doing was trying to help the forestry officers learn how to deal with the pit vipers that they have. And they call them landsheds, um, or no, excuse me, they call them the fair to lands, which, you know, Technically, the fair to lands is supposed to be only on Martinique, but in St. Lucia, they call them fair to lands. They speak French. So, and yeah, they're speaking, you know, Creole. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, they used to just kill everyone they saw. If it showed up on a trail, even within the protected land, they would just kill it. And so the only shift that they're trying to make right now is to not kill them in the, in the preserve and to make the forestry officers available to move them if a private citizen calls them and says like, hey, there's a snake in my garden, the forestry officers should you know, be able to go and move right. them safely. So that's basically what we were doing was just trying to give them the skill set, and we left some tools there too um, so that they could move them safely. So that's kind of, that was one thing that we did. Uh, we also have done some work in uh, Sri Lanka which if people don't know where that is, it's the teardrop-shaped country at the bottom of India. And uh, what we were doing there was actually working with the group that's trying to uh, make the anti-venom for Sri Lanka. So we did not do a lot of public education there, but what we were doing was working with the people who are taking care of their snakes, like as the husbandry and extraction consultants. So we were trying to help them you know, learn how to deworm wild-caught snakes, you know, how to get wild-caught snakes to eat, that kind of thing. And then Jim was working with them. Um, they actually have a really good guy there. They have several good people, but the one guy who's actually doing the extractions, like working with him to learn, you know, how to be careful about finger placement and, and all the particulars that are involved when you're actually picking them up, which of course is a whole other level of being dangerous than just keeping one in a, in a tank or a cage. Uh, so those are kind of the, the two things overseas that we've worked on. And then, um, I'm also on the board of the Rattlesnake Preservation Trust. Mm. And I don't know, are you guys familiar with that? No. Uh, so um, it's myself, but there's a, there's a whole group of people uh, who are involved. And we're basically, initially, we're trying to offer an alternative to the traditional rattlesnake roundup. So we're putting on an event. And this year, we actually held it in conjunction with the Texas State Fair. And it's called Lone Star Rattlesnake Days. And the idea is to offer something that can draw in the public and still be a successful fundraising activity without involving all the cruelty, slaughter, horribleness that is rattlesnake roundups. Um, so I've also been working on that the last few years and uh, we go down for that event and Jim will actually extract there at the event, which of course they do with the roundups, but it's nasty. Um, <laughs> and so we're doing it in a clean way that shows that 
the animals can be, you know, healthy and taken care of and the venom can be you know, replicated and all of those things. Um, so, so those are we've been doing recently. If we still lived in Texas, that's definitely something we uh, would want to be a part of. We went to the uh, Sweetwater one uh, so a couple you know. of years ago, and that is still unlike anything I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. Like, my, my jaw was on the floor probably the whole time. I, yeah, I'm sure it was. It's, it's really, I mean, I think that attitudes are slowly changing there. We talked to a lot of people this year who really um, – you know, they may not have been huge fans of snakes, but they really did understand at least something about the idea that they're part of nature and that they eat rodents and that sort of thing. So there was at least a little bit of a shift, um, but it's it's a long slog. I mean, I, I will say that I've been working this year to kind of educate myself on how people change their minds and how, uh, how to get people to change their actions. And there is a giant body of research out there because of advertising. So the information is there, but conservation organizations, we do a really terrible job at utilizing that vast body of research because it isn't in our field. And so I've been trying, you know, I'm not doing, done, I've not done as much as I should have, but I have been trying to educate myself more on that side of things so that my outreach stuff can be more uh, effective. I think that's great. Oh. Hello? Yeah, yeah, yeah you kind of made it out there. <laughs> oh, because I heard Jim was about to say something, so I cut myself off because I didn't wow. want to <laughs> cut him off. I was just gonna say she's the brains and I'm the I'm the muscles. So <laughs> she does all the. She's the one. If if you have questions, that she's the one who knows stuff. <laughs> well, we've we've talked about Sweetwater, and we went to Sweetwater. We you put out a video put about out a video it. Video about Sweetwater, and did all this stuff, and kind of skimmed on the surface of all the issues involved, but I, obviously, cause I want to hear it from you guys, as far as the venom extraction goes, and I got videos of people telling me what happens with the venom extractions, but I want to yeah. hear from you. You may have a lot more insight about what really well, happened. Here's, here's the perfect thing. thing. Well, Rustin is the one who did it, so yeah. we need to give yeah. him credit. So Rustin Hardigan, who's the, I think he's, his job title has recently changed, but at the time he was a curator of reptiles at the Dallas Zoo, he actually wrote BTG. And said, that's the people who make Crowfab. Those, yeah, those are the, the yeah the company that that owns uh, Crowfab. And said, you know, where does your venom come from? Can you give us a statement about this? And they did provide a letter saying that all of their venom is produced in house or from a handful of suppliers. Of course, we know who those are. They're the big venom providers in the U.S. And they said explicitly that they do not source venom from Roundups, and that they would have a problem if any of their suppliers did so. So there you go. It's not used in any sort of legitimate stuff. Now, maybe they're sending it to Asia for some homeopathic thing or something. That's possible. I can't say if they are or not, but it's not being used in antivenom. And it's not being used by any legitimate pharmaceutical company. And since the guy who used to go there and buy a bunch of it that sold it overseas is no longer buying it, they've approached us to buy it. <laughs> and obviously we've told them no. Yeah. <laughs> and not 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 very good language, but you know, we told them no. I feel like that dirt floor venue is far from a lab. <laughs> yeah. And and, the, and you know the, the the one thing we try to we try to tell people is that science is a, is the ability to replicate what you're doing. If you're killing the animal after you just extracted from it, and there's something weird in that venom, can't replicate it, 
Yeah, it's gone. It's gone. So I have snakes that have been on the venom production line for 40 years. I've got one crate that is going on 43 or 44 yeah, years old. I don't old. even know. It's really old. Yeah. And, and he still, I knock on wood, yeah, he yeah. still seems complete. Like he doesn't even act like an old snake. Yeah. He still has a strong. I haven't, I, haven't been able, I haven't been able to get him a mate. But I'm afraid now that if I got him a mate, he'd have a heart attack. <laughs> you know, Too much so, effort. Yeah. So, but I mean, it, it it's just like the first snake I extracted venom from when I was between 17, 18 years old was for a physician friend of mine. And I started with king cobras. And I was doing 50 king cobras every two weeks. And I did that for two years for a project. Really was, starting small there. <laughs> well, to be honest, King, you know, you see people screwing around with kings. The reason is they're more forgiving than you know. If I get if I take a lance-headed viper or fertilance or any of the lance-heads, they'll light you up. I mean, they will light you up, and you know that you don't see people normally free-handling those animals because if you get one that's got an attitude, it's going to light you up real good. So um, I've seen people slough off their arm and not be a skeletal remain from being bit by a, a bothrops. So, you know, it's not a not a it's a bad bite. It's one of the worst bites I've ever taken. Um, I didn't lose tissue, but I ended up having a hand. It's uh, this particular hand. Where, where's the little thing? Here, you see it? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, this hand right here. The tip of the finger is a desert horn viper from Saudi Arabia. This is from kickboxing. This is compressed. And so my thumb is shorter from kickboxing. Mm -hmm. The biggest damage to my hand, you can't see. All these bones in my hand, now carpal. Here, let me help you. Okay. Are few. There you go. <laughs> All these are few. And there were tiny micro breaks in them when I got bit from years and years of kickboxing. And what happened was we believe because nobody else has had this happen because nobody's as dumb as me. No one's um, done kickboxing in it. Yeah, yeah. But when the hand surgeon was looking at the x-ray, I couldn't see it. And I could see his eyes though. And his eyes got real big and then he turns around and he says, I can't do anything for you. All your bones have fused. So I'll, this is my flexion in my wrist. Is that right? Yeah. That? Okay. That's, that's my flexion in the wrist and that's what your normal flexion is. So they told me I would have a claw for a hand and I wouldn't be functional. I can still grab snakes. I work out every day. I make myself functional. Functional. Yeah. You know, I didn't, I, I, the hand surgeons, you know, told me when I went under anesthetic, when they were doing the surgery to remove the abscesses that formed in my hand, that I might wake up with no hand. And I was aware of that, but they did a good job. The guys who worked on me were some of the guys who did the hand transplant. So they were on the team that did the hand transplant, the first hand transplant. So they were really good hand surgeons. Now they're friends of mine. Now for everybody who sees our videos and think they know something, this finger, I lost to a cheap weightlifting bench. There's nothing. Wow. And I actually had it in a bottle of formaldehyde and I kept it in my lab. And one of the guys who worked for us uh, got a job at the Baltimore Aquarium and he decided to take the finger with him. So my finger ended up, I started getting pictures in the mail that, with a fingerprint on the back of the envelope. Is that saying, in the bedroom? I get it, show. Yeah, I think it is. All right, I'll see if I can find these pictures. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a fingerprint 
on the back of the envelope saying, wish we were still attached. And that finger wow. went to a bunch of zoos all over the United States. And went to a strip club too. But the, it disappeared at Anne Rice's Halloween party. So I have pictures of people dressed like the, the people from Interview with a Vampire in New Orleans holding my finger. <sighs> now, I told that story on To Tell the Truth when they had me on last year, and they edited it all out. They said it was too macabre. And then the host turns around, throws a rubber snake on the woman, scares her to death. So, you know, and I had told them, that's another thing about having a contract. My contract says I do not scare people with snakes. Now I have to write my contract. Nobody else does either. Because the producer came up to me afterwards. And I said, look, I told you I'm not going to scare you. He goes, you didn't. He did. And I'm like, oh, shit. You know, he got me, right? And you got to <laughs> have everything. And literally, Kristen will tell you, in some of those contracts, it says you're signing away your rights in the total universe. It sounds like something from one of those cartoons, you know, or, or from the Marx Brothers or something. You know, you're signing everything away. Anything and everything you could think yeah. of. Well, I just had something pop up on a German TV show. I don't know anything about it. It was on a German TV show, <laughs> you know, because somebody sold them footage of me. So it's, it's bizarre. You couldn't find Sorry, it. Sorry, no luck. I don't know where uh, it is. Okay. <laughs> I thought I knew, but it isn't there. Yeah, it's, it's, it disappeared. We, we had, sure it's here somewhere. We had a kid here who was doing a, <laughs> going to do a documentary and, um, for his class and stuff. And he wanted to have some, I got some old 8M films of me fighting in karate tournaments and stuff. And he wanted those. I couldn't find them. I found them the day after he left. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I'll find the pictures later. But <laughs> it seems like you probably have collections of all types of things throughout the years. Yeah. But it seems like that would be like your most important digit to have in order to, to I mean, extract yeah, venom from snakes. I don't even, I'm ambidextrous. I can still grab a snake with his hand. And what I do is I can grab and hold with the fingers here. I can hold up a 45 pound plate like this with my fingers. So I can hold an animal without it moving and without damaging it. So yes, I do need to have my fingers, but this tip of this finger, I lost to a desert horn viper from Saudi Arabia almost 30 years ago. And it became necrotic. It was about ready to, it had uh, gaseous gangrene. It actually smelled the nasty odor of gangrene. And it was about to auto-amputate. So I went in, had them do a block on me. They amputated it, and then I dissected it. And the bone was actually gone. It you was dissected just... your own? Yeah. <laughs> okay. I, I stitched my head up here when I was kickboxing. Um, I was fighting at a tournament where we had multiple, we had to do multiple rounds. And I was an idiot, and I stitched instead of putting stereo strips on it. First time a guy hit me with a jab, it just exploded. You know, so now I got a scar. And my worst scar on my head probably is, I have one that goes down through here from a toenail from somebody, but I have one right here from Yeti. Um, Yeti was a cat. And I, I, told that story to, I told that story to a doctor, and I thought they were going to send me to psych ward. And uh, what happened was, it was right before we were leaving for Sri Lanka, we, we get these cats dumped and so we feel bad for them and we don't want them outside because they're eco-terrorists so we bring them inside and get He's them being nice i'm sort of a crazy cat yeah she's a crazy <laughs> cat. so we 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 adopt some cats well we got this cat that was 
white and had no, no tail. tail. And it, it was, somebody had dumped it. It was a beautiful cat, but it was Big Tom. And he just, for some reason, fell in love with me and would not go away from me, but he walked between my feet. And I got up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom. He tripped me, and I hit a table with my head. <sighs> and she comes over, and she goes, she turned the light on. She goes, we got to go to the hospital. I'm saying, no, just let me get in the bed. She goes, no, you, you need stitches. And it, it opened my head up, and I had a huge lump on my you head. You could, like, see things. You could see the bone and everything. Yeah. yeah it was not, and it was so not I got stitched up and, like, three hours later got on a plane and started flying to Sri Lanka. And Wait, seems like a bad place to have an open wound or a fresh wound of any sort. No, they stitched it for me. I mean, I mean he, we took he the stitches like, out while we were like there. like a war injured. Like he had like you know yeah, gauze all the way around, around his head. head, and we like he couldn't find his seat or anything because he was so loopy from from the head blow. That's just normal. And then the best part of this whole story, though, is with the flight path that we took went from here like through Texas and then we, we landed in London and then we went from London to Sri Lanka and we were meeting up with two other people that were working on the project, uh, Dan Kyler, some people may be familiar with and Kim McWhorter. And they, when we met them in London, they took one look at Jim and immediately started like falling down laughing. And the reason for that was not five or 10 minutes before they met us, they were discussing between each other that maybe they should have brought a helmet for Jim because he's so accident prone. <laughs> and then they see how many already has a head injury. Yeah, you're talking about that focus. I have focus when I'm in the ring and I have focus when I'm working with snakes, but when I'm walking, I trip over my own feet. We have to be careful. Like I have to make sure the interns clean up the yard and like don't leave anything laying around because he'll find it and trip over it, just trying to like walk out to do something. So I mean, just hearing all these stories, I just I'm imagining you like wrapped in bubble wrap. Like <laughs> <laughs> if we could do that, it might be safer. <laughs> I mean, I feel I like, like the snakes like are the least of your injuries yeah. or concerns. Yeah. Like it's the rest I, of life. <laughs> when I went to the I went to the uh one of the physicians that's gonna be doing my hip and I went to another physician that was that was working I have damage to my uh spleen from a blood clot. And we don't know if that's some snake bite or from kickboxing because either one could cause it. And when I went to these doctors, they all say you should write a book. And they're not talking about snakes; they're talking about all the other exactly that's happened to me. I've been stabbed. I've been run. Um, we we lost you at a very critical moment. So started. Okay. I got stabbed. Yeah. <laughs> I was I. I used to do some bounty hunting and I went to serve papers on a divorce of all things. And a guy stabbed me and he stabbed me in the back. Did he not want the divorce that badly? I don't know. <laughs> he, he, his wife would have me serve papers. I guess he was mad. Yeah. But what happened was I forgot about the scar because I have so many scars that we were actually doing a uh, thing for the TV when we were going to uh, to St. Lucia, they wanted to do like a, a physical of me so they could have it on some cut for TV. I think it got cut out though. But yeah, they were pointing at my back and they're saying, hey, you got a scar right here, where's that from? And I'm sitting there going, oh yeah, that's where the guy put a buck knife in my back. And, <laughs> and so, I mean, I, I one time I was snake hunting and a guy left a boot knife on the, 
on the dashboard, slammed on the brakes, and I looked down, and it's just sticking in my leg, and it was just wobbling. So, I mean, I'm I, so I, glad I, you're I, alive to be having this conversation <laughs> right now. Well, I actually, from I've had my heart stop uh, four times. <laughs> Once from human and three from snakes. I've been on life support seven times. So wow. I've been, I've been pretty hard on my body, but you know Kristen, how high is your blood pressure being married to him? <laughs> Luckily it's naturally low. <laughs> she's, she's very calm. The actual the uh, one I of the, am calm. I don't yeah, usually get upset. Yeah, the only time I've ever gotten uncalm about stuff involving snakes was when she got bit. It was a different feeling to have someone you love who is in trouble and you know you're used to being the trouble <laughs> you know I'm, i was used to it happening to me i, I just made it up so, but it, it's you know it's harder it's it's a lot harder than when the shoe's on the other foot so i i kind of now see what it's like from that side but she wasn't on life support so i don't know i mean i i I tell her to video everything, but the last one with the Derissus, I had seizures really bad, and the, and it the, was too much. It was too much for her. Excuse me. But I, when I got bit, it was like almost four years ago. One of the tubes, is the, if you watch the extractions, I run the uh, the South American rattlesnakes up the tube because their neck is very brittle and their heads are very small, and they thrash. So that controls the body, kind of like, a, you know, when you're doing jujitsu and you do an arm bar, you sit it in. If you don't sit it right, you're in trouble. You know, you don't get tapped, you get bit. But it came sideways and broke the, the tube. It was my fault because I didn't check the tube like I normally do to see if it was brittle. And we use bleach and stuff to clean them. So eventually they all get brittle. And it hit me with one fang in the, on, on the wrist. And I don't remember leaving the parking lot of the zoo. And Kat, who works for us, Kristen was actually down in Atlanta, and Kat, who works for us, was driving me to meet the ambulance, and I fell over on her. And she was punching me, trying to get me to respond. Then they said, when they put me in the ambulance, I sat up, told them how much anti-serum to give me, how to, uh, how to uh, reconstitute it, and to intubate me. I don't remember any of that. I remember waking up nine hours later I don't know. yeah and she was later. sitting next to the bed and they excavated me because i was over breathing the respirator and i stayed in the hospital i got i got bit on friday i got out sunday night i had to stay in a little extra because my creatin level was really high where the, the myotoxins were breaking down the muscle and that could send you into ribomyolysis and you go into renal failure so i stayed in until i got washed out of my system i got out sunday night i was already scheduled to have meniscus surgery on uh, Wednesday, and I convinced the doctor to do the surgery. He knew me. He's the guy who's going to do my hip. And uh, he said, well, as long as your blood workups are okay, I don't have a problem. It's one of the few times she's gotten mad at me. She, she was afraid I was going to have a heart attack on the, on the table for a, a procedure that shouldn't have had any problem. But my feeling was the opposite. It was like, I'm recovering. Why not just recover from two things at the same time? Uh, I got dropped on my head as a child. So. <laughs> well, what does your rapport have to be with your like paramedics, EMTs, and your Real best friends? And yeah, your that's actually that's a good thing to bring up because um, we do like that's why we started offering the training stuff. But we also really make an effort to talk to the people at the hospital at University of Kentucky. 
And they've got some really great physicians there who have taken the time to get to know us and to understand what we're doing. And if we didn't have that, you know, if you show up to the hospital and say, oh, I got bit by a cobra, they're not going to believe you. You know, they're going to do a talk screen first to see what you're on. You know, they're not going to think that it's logical that someone would have a cobra. So it's really important to have that good relationship with them. Um, and we, I mean, we do a, what we can to, to foster it, but they're also just good people and have been good to us too. So um, that is that is a really important thing. And it really helps do. that I have had an investigational drug license since I was 18 years old to import and possess antivenom. So um, the Philadelphia yeah. Zoo is the longest continual place to have an IND number for antiserum, and I'm pretty close behind them. So, so do you actually bring your own with yes. you to the hospital? Yep. Yeah, and because they're not going to cover, you know, they're not going to have Thai or African antivenom. Or Australian antivenom. And I mean. actually, I'm going to say this, sorry to interrupt you, yeah. but I don't know if anyone who watches your podcast has venomous animals, but I have a standing offer that if there are private individuals who want to get their own antivenom, I have a PDF that all they have to do is send me an email and I will send it to them and I will provide them guidance on how to get their own antivenom because I firmly believe that anyone who's keeping venomous snakes needs to have their own antivenom in case of a bite and I'm happy to help anybody who's willing to do it. I'm happy to help with it. So just putting that out there. Yeah, <laughs> by the time <laughs> by the time you get anti-venom shipped from a zoo or from Venom One or from someplace else, the tissue is dead. The organs are damaged. You know, it, you know. It's just Dr. Bush said it. Sean Bush said it. You know, time time is tissue. Well, people were thinking of necrosis. That's not what he was talking about, and that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about organ damage. Yeah. You know, you end up on on uh, dialysis for the rest of your life. We had one gentleman who got bit, who eventually died from anaphylaxia because he took too many bites. But he um, he got bit and he ended up on dialysis, and and you know that's you know that's hard. So and as you get older, it gets even harder to be on dialysis. So um, it it. It's smarter to be ahead of the game. Everybody goes, well, I'm never going to get bit. Well, maybe you won't. Maybe you will. It's very wishful thinking. Yeah. yeah. But, and, and it's even worse, though, if it happens while you are after midnight. You know, that's usually when we get called. It's 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning yeah. trying to arrange to get the anti-serum flown to a hospital is not easy. Yeah. And, you know, we well, the last call that came in, I didn't wake up. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was up real late the night before and I had to get up real early and the call came at like four in the morning or something. And I didn't hear the phone at all. I woke up early. I mean, it was like five or something when I got up anyway and looked at the phone. And I was like, Oh no, <laughs> you know, and immediately called. And I think they had found another source of it by that point. But you know, that's time that's wasting that if the person had their own stuff, wouldn't have even and that, happened. And that, you know? and that person ended up in having... That person a, had a bad bite. Little, yeah, really bad bite. And because of the delay of the anti-venom, it was exacerbated. It was worse. Yeah. Now, most of these bites that at least you get calls for, just in general, I mean, are most of them for native species? No. No. We do occasionally get people who call 
wanting advice because they've had a bite from a native species or occasionally we'll have physicians that call if there's some kind of weird circumstance but most of the time if we're getting a call especially a call in the middle of the night it's someone who's bitten by their pet kuthia or kaboon <laughs> um, occasionally it's something else but those are the most common pet venomous snakes so that's and those are also i think the snakes that are the first ones that people get so they're you know, they're either people who really probably shouldn't have any animal as a pet and they're doing it for their ego. And that was my exact thought. Yeah. Um, or there are people that maybe do, you know, they have decent intentions. And I understand that people are interested in venomous snakes and there's people that do a very good job taking care of them in the private sector. But if it's the first one you have and you're learning, then that's the one you're going to make the mistake with. And a lot of times people start with Kuthia with monocle covers because they're cheap, they're easy to get, they're, you know, pretty, I guess. Um, and that's what they end up with. And that is not really a starter snake, in my opinion. You know? as, as far as, as an animal that's almost bulletproof, they're easy to take care of, but they're not forgiving. We used to have somebody working for us who said you can't kill them with a stick. Yeah, yeah, he said. <laughs> Which I well, you could they, for some they, reason you were trying. They, they are, are very tough. They are a snake that, of the venomous snakes that could possibly become invasive, are one of the ones that could, because their metabolism. They do not. I mean, we had law enforcement bring us one that was frozen stiff. I mean, it was like like a cane. It was, and I warmed it up hard. slowly, and it was alive. Yeah. Wow. So still here. So you know, it's not good. You know, that's why people need to be a, be responsible. I mean, you know, everybody wants to say throw around their rights, their rights. You have a privilege to keep an animal. Make sure you keep that privilege, and by keeping that privilege, it means being responsible. Don't put yourself out there where everybody sees you being an idiot. You know, be an idiot at home alone. Yeah, yeah, be an idiot at home alone. I mean, post all these, you know, reckless videos, free handling or sticking needles in your arm and stuff like that does not make the general public say, oh, yeah, those people are normal. Should definitely have the right to keep those. Let's definitely <laughs> yeah. give them more rights. I mean, yeah, you know, it's it's just not, it doesn't work. It doesn't way. matter if that's right or wrong. Yeah. It's true. Yeah. You know, yeah. like it's, it might be unfair that, someone being an idiot can take away the rights of you um, know decent upstanding people but that's reality yeah and so th there's no point in railing against the fact that that's unfair it, it is yeah. but you know you're not going to make most general public people think that keeping snakes well, it, is it, normal it, i mean it, i think it's better than it used to be yeah let alone venomous snakes though just snakes and yeah. venomous. Uh, well Especially i mean we stuff. we yeah. when we had king cobra's hatch a couple years ago, we decided to send out press release and they came down, they did a nice little thing for the local media. I made the mistake of reading the comments. Oh, and never, never. Number one of fame. Yeah. Yes, never. Burn, <laughs> burn down the, the zoo, kill yeah. those snakes. Yeah. You know, just, I mean, all a bunch kinds of just, stuff. I mean, it was just, it was. And really that's bad. what you're fighting against when you're like, hey, I want to keep my pet corn snake yeah. is people with that kind of attitude. And so if you don't look like you're at least semi-normal, they're not, you know, or act like you're semi-normal, then, you know. I always, I always, point, I always point out to people, the person who did most of the breeding of the original um, polymorph corn snakes was Dr. Bechtel. Mm -hmm. Little old man, you know, 
nondescript, nice guy, but he was a um, dermatologist. And he was infatuated with him in Georgia. And so he could only keep, the only non-venomous snakes he could keep in the state were those that were color morphs. So he started finding them and breeding them and stuff. And then the loves and everybody else picked it up and mm-hmm. stuff like that. I, you know, when I was a kid, one of the first snakes I bred was Okatee corns. I used to go down to Okatee and hunt them all the time. And she ended up with one of my Okatees when before she even knew me. Yeah. She, one of my friends sold her an Okatee up in Ohio. <laughs> so. And then I brought it here when I. Then came she here brought it. Yeah, she brought it here. I was I like, just, hey, look at my pet corn snake. Yeah, I just got. I so just got rid of like that. a couple hundred uh, <laughs> Okatee corns. <laughs> but um, yeah. Not that one though. Yeah. <laughs> So I want to talk about corn snakes, but I do want to backtrack because- I have some questions too. We've been like thinking of questions in our head. Okay, you can go Well, I want to say, you know, someone who's listening to this is someone at least who's semi-responsible because they're doing research by listening to this, but what is responsible, you know, in your opinion, you know, getting into your first venomous animal? If you're keeping a venomous animal, you keep, you have a separate, either separate building or a locked room where kids can't get in. Yeah, I don't care what people say. Kids will find a way. Yeah. So you can't have access to kids. The cages, if the, the doors are locked, I don't necessarily think you have to have the cages locked, but you need to have some kind of a system that you double check yourself that the cage is closed. Yeah. Because everybody who keeps a snake has something to escape eventually. It's a criminal thing if you have a venomous snake to escape. Now, there have been a lot of staged escapes of snakes and other animals because people want to be famous. But back in 1983, I took a cobra out of a garage in Dayton, Ohio. And that snake escaped. And two months later, I treated a child in the same neighborhood for a rattlesnake bite. She fell off her bicycle and put her hand down on a Western diamondback rattlesnake. Wow. Same guy had the animals. So that's not responsible. Nobody knew that those animals existed. Firemen didn't know they existed. You know, um, the guy was... You know, he just, he was irresponsible. And that's the kind of thing. Most people who are responsible, um, that are private keepers, have cages that are locked. They have, you know, and then, you know, if they're keeping venomous, they have labels on the cage. And they, they know what they have. They know what they have. <laughs> I mean, I've had people bitten and say, it's a black cobra. Oh, no. Several different species of cobras that are black. Yeah, well, yeah, you know, and it's like, uh, Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I would add antivenom to that. Yeah, antivenom. I, it, I think you know, it, it, especially with her and and stuff. I've gotten a little. I do the work to import the antivenom, yeah. yeah. so it's a little bit personal for me because if somebody takes our antivenom, then it's a giant pain in the ass for me to get it again. Not to mention an expense. But also, but she's also worried that she's worried it's going to get me killed. That's the other thing. Yeah, is I have the you know the antivenom is here to protect us and our employees. and our employees. It's but there are there are people who will see comments. They they act like. It's our responsibility to take care of everybody else. Yeah. It's your responsibility to take care of you. Look in the mirror. You're responsible for yourself. I have another thing. Yes. I'm surprised you haven't said, no. which is responsible keeping is demonstrating responsible behavior. So if you're posting your animals online in any form of social media, if you're putting yourself out there, you should be using tools, not free handling, not playing kissy face with the danger noodle. <laughs> and don't, if you use the word danger noodle, you're out. No, you're out. You shouldn't have that venomous. Uh, it's, it's, so, a, you know, 
treating the animal with the respect it deserves. Venomous snakes are awesome because of what they are. They're not awesome because they're dogs. Dogs are awesome because they're dogs. You know, play kissy face with your dog or your cat or your, you know, whatever. Not with your venomous always snake. play kissy face with dogs. Yeah. <laughs> probably not. <laughs> oh no, the one bite I've had is from a dog right here. So. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, I, I tell kids all the time that the reason the dog's wagging his tail is not because he's happy to see you. It's because he's going to bite you, maybe. He's happy you, to bite you don't you. know if you don't know the animal, you don't approach it. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, but I the only bite I've ever taken to the face was from a reticulated python, and it was somebody's tame reticulated python. He was standing five feet away from me. Wow. And it launched itself and hit me right between the eyes. Now we were talking about kissy face, and I was almost ready to, I'm not on, I have no media thing anymore. I don't have a Facebook page or anything just because it draws too much crap. And, but I was going to write something up because I was reminded of it the other day when all these people were sticking snakes in their face, pissing on this stuff. I had a guy that I reviewed a medical on because they wanted to know if the snake was venomous. It wasn't. It was an anaconda, but it took his eyeball out of his head. He was kissing on it, grabbed and caught the eye and pulled it out and deflated it. So those, and I, I've had iguanas rip the nose off of women. Surely anybody's keeping during, iguanas yeah, be aware of yeah, the during, they can do. But yeah, during the, the time of the month for women, male iguanas will and have attacked women. And they'll rip you. They can crack a walnut, man. When we were catching them in Central and South America, we had these animals that had huge heads and weighed almost 30 pounds. They were monstrous animals. But you don't see that in captivity because most people don't take real good care of their iguanas. If you're going to have an iguana, it should be a higher echelon, even though it's a cheaper animal, because it's an animal that takes a lot of care. You know? I think, you know, I was just thinking, I, I mean, we definitely talk amongst ourselves about an animal being cute. Yeah. Jim doesn't. He doesn't no. think they're cute. But, you know, we do. Uh, we have some puff adders right now, and I think they are very cute. Like, yeah. they do this this defense posture that they do where they kind of hold their head up and they, they give you the side eye. It's, it is endearing it, it, when they do It's cute when you're not milking them. Right. Yeah, when they do that when you're milking them, they're about to launch themselves right. at you. But, so, yeah. but I think that even though I feel that way when I look at them, I don't treat it that way when I work with it. Does that make sense? So I'm like, okay, you know, yes, I think this animal is amazing. I, I find it endearing. I, it makes me want to care for it more when I see it doing these interesting behaviors. But at the same time, it doesn't make me think that it loves me or it has any affection towards me or anything at all. It's a defensive posture. It's, it's scared. And so I think it's, it's one thing to say those things to in encourage yourself to take good care of the animal and to care about it, which of course we have to do because they're under our care. But it's another thing to allow that to cloud your ability to make decisions. And I think sometimes it's, it's easy to do that because we do like the animals so much and we do think they're so great. But you have to remember that it, it, you know, that animal is not operating from a human perspective or a mammalian perspective. It's completely different. It's important to remember that and, and to treat it, you know, I think it's important to do that for your own safety, but also in order to give the animal what it needs too. Well, they, you see all the videos yeah. of the people with the king cobras and stuff and they're hooded up or any of the cobras hooded up. Normally when I'm extracting, I don't want to see them hooded up. And there's a reason for that. It's stressful. 
It's not because they like you. That's a defense mechanism. That's like a guy puffing his chest up to look big and bad. They're right. trying to scare you away. So their stress hormone just goes through the ceiling when that happens. So everyone who's posing with the cobra yeah, hooded, hooded is, is intentionally stressing, stressing that animal out in order to take a photo with it. Yep. Right. I, Barry Green had the best thing. He says, take a natural picture of a rattlesnake. And everybody's like, well, yeah, I got its hood, you know, rattling in its head up. That's not the no. natural. That's it scared and it's been teased and it's been put in that position. Let it crawl across, take an actual, the way it actually behaves and take a picture of it. And that's what the cobras normally, if you watched a lot of our videos, you'll see most of the animals are going away from it. And when we had one of the production companies here, they go, well, why aren't they attacking him? I'm like, because they don't want to. They don't do that. <laughs> why don't do that? They want to get away. And the only time that they don't is when they're cornered and they're a wild animal. Provoked, right. Yeah. So, it, 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 you know, we try to, you know, when I extract, that's why I do the animals quickly and without a show, is that I don't want to stress them. And that's why my animals last so long and they breed. And, you know, some of the breeding, too, we do uh, is also to show that it can be done. Because when I first started out doing the extractions and stuff 40-some years ago, the old way was you bring the animal in for six months to a year and it's dead. You just get a new one. And that's the old way. And they used to force feed them all. Cocking guns and all that crap. None of our animals have to be force fed. They all feed voluntarily. So and if there is something wrong with them, we go, we we, we're not extracting from we them. We don't extract from them. And we also have a vet that we use. So we, you know, we make sure we have checkups on them. So now how long as far as like mitigating stress and everything is there some type of rotation that you work on like if you milk an animal you won't milk it for a certain amount of time after yeah so they're on a uh it depends on the species but the majority of them are on a two-week rotation but some are three or even four weeks kind of depending on how stressed they get and then we feed them a lot way more than you would feed a snake that's just hanging out and the reason for that is they are using more energy being extracted from and providing that venom. So like our Western Diamondbacks, for example, they get extracted from every two weeks during the active season. Now they do hibernate, so they're not getting extracted from now. And then we feed them the day after extraction and then again in a week. So they actually eat twice in between extractions, which is a way, I mean, you know, Western Diamondback would never eat that much in the wild. But if you don't feed them like that, they can't maintain the body weight with that amount of stress. So we don't feed them huge meals. I mean, they're not, you know, big Western Diamondback could eat a really, you know, could eat a small rabbit, but we're not feeding them anything that's that big, but we're giving them multiple smaller meals. And that's a different way than you would manage something that you just have, you know, as a pet or as just an exhibit animal. But we have to do that in order to keep them healthy. That so is. it's a very, like, scheduled, timed, you know, thing to make sure that they get what they need in between. Is there any direct correlation to the amount of food an animal eats uh, to venom yield? Only in that if you don't feed them, they won't give you anything. Um, okay. If you, <laughs> you know, if you or not give them water. Yeah. Or when we, when water, we went sure. to a few years back, we um, assisted on a uh, um, fish and wildlife raid where they went into religious snake handlers and they took the snakes and they didn't take them because of their religion. They took them because they were selling native species illegally and they sold them to an undercover agent who videoed them. Wow. So they asked us to go in and identify the snakes and remove the snakes. 
we got like 300 rattlesnakes in, in copperheads. And every one of them had something wrong with it. I mean, like every, we ended up having, some of them had paramyxio, yeah. so they had to be euthanized. And then other ones, they, they didn't produce any venom at all. We because extracted they had from meat. like 70 copperheads that yeah. came from one place yeah. when we got them just to see. I mean, we, cause we knew what was gonna happen, but this way we could prove it. They didn't give enough venom to even run down the funnel and drip into the vial. Yep. And this 70, is now if we from 70 of our animals here, we would probably have a gram uh, yeah, a couple grams of venom. Well, the other thing that we found with when we went in and they had them in the little boxes, you'll see the videos and stuff online. And the little boxes, there was 25 copperheads in a little box that was maybe two feet, you know, by six inches. And there was no water in there, and every one of them, their urates had become solid. They were in renal failure. They were wobbling their heads and stuff, and they would they would point blank tell us, "Oh, we care about the animals, but they won't eat and they won't drink." Well, if you don't feed them and you don't give them water, they're not going to eat and they're not going to drink. So you know, it, they don't care about them, and it's all you know. To give you an idea, she she talked on, on uh, NPR. Uh, with one of the guys who was in the TV show Snake Salvation, uh, Jamie Koontz. And when he was on there, he admitted that their snakes lasted two months. Mm. We said, that's a failure. We, if they don't last years, yeah, well, you guys, if you get a new snake in and it dies in two months, you figured yeah, something's wrong. Something's wrong. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. yeah, you know. And, and so, but then he turned around and he goes, well, and he, he said this on the radio, and it's, it's like he didn't even really understand it, but he goes, the snakes are getting smaller here in Kentucky, so we're trading with the guys down in South Carolina to get bigger rattlesnakes. I said, well, what's bigger rattlesnake have to do with your religion? That's, that's a male ego thing, man. You're, you're wanting to show that our church handles the bigger rattlesnakes. Now, the day that I had my hip replacement, like two days after that, Jamie got bit and died. And I reviewed his autopsy over the telephone. They sent me pictures. And there were sections of his brain where he bled out. Hmm. And he delayed medical treatment. He refused medical treatment, and he died. His choice to do that. But I've seen people online tell kids, oh, if you get bit by a copperhead or you get bit by this, just stay home. Well, you don't know when you're in trouble till you're in trouble. You go to the hospital. I mean, I'm never going to tell somebody to stay home. I mean, how do you even combat something like you know the religious aspect? You don't. That? You can't. You don't. You don't combat it that way. Yeah. Because their religion is their right. Yeah. And that's you know that's fine. But what I what I'll tell people, and we do get customers that ask about it because there's still our handlers here in Kentucky, <laughs> and I'll I'll tell customers, I, it's not a judgment on their religion. But their death rate is the same as what the death rate would be for an untreated tumor rattlesnake bite in the general population. And people can draw their own conclusions from that. Yeah. And my problem with it isn't that they have it as their religion. My problem is they don't take care of the animals. If they want to have nice, healthy animals that they take care of and use them in church, fine. We actually actually let Jamie Jamie Koontz come here. We showed him how to do husbandry. Yeah. And they just... They're not, they don't they want to do it. They don't want to. Yeah. In the, in the state of Kentucky, they can legally have five timber rattlesnakes for their own personal reason. 
Mm. They can't sell it. Right. But they can have it for their own personal purpose. And that's because of religion. They wanted to be able to not interfere with their religion. So they, you know, if you have a wife, you have 10, but she could have five. You know, you have a son, he's got five. You know, there's no age limit. So they could have as many as they want. And they were going out and actually taking jacks, jacking up the rock facing and taking squeegees wow. and pulling gravid females out from the denning sites. Yeah. They knew how to find them. And in the freezer in Jamie's house, when I went in on the raid, there was a freezer that was three feet high and three feet wide. It was full of dead timber rattlesnakes, frozen solid. And he said he was going to sell the skins, which was illegal. And so, you know, it, they were going to actually charge him with a felony because he had so many misdemeanors and added up to a felony. We talked him out of doing it because he had a blasting license at the time, and he would have lost his blasting license. And then he we could, talked about it. Well, we talked. Know. They asked us. They about asked us for yeah. our opinion, but I yeah. think they 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 decided they not to. They weren't trying to ruin. They were trying life. to ruin his life. They just wanted him to stop selling the animals illegal. Mm-hmm. So, but it, you know, he got it. He got the TV show, and it started. They actually uh, Nat Geo when they did that show. They contacted us and said, oh, we'll let you guys uh, debunk them for half of the show. But they didn't tell us it was a reality show and it was going to be 16 episodes. Happened to be one of my friends who's a producer told me that. Wow. And I'm like, the lady called me back and I'm saying, you lied to me. You're playing me. (laughs) Yeah. 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 They tried to, we were skeptical though. I think I talked to him first and I was like, this sounds weird. Yeah. And then you talked to your friend and found out the real story. And then we were like, yeah, okay. Yeah. This is, this is, this is going, you know, they build them up and then we have 15 minutes to be the bad guy. Right. You know, cop, bad cop. You know? <laughs> so. I don't think anyone wins and stuff like that. No, no. Nope. It's better just to stay out of it. Yep. Wow. Okay. Um, well, we have some questions from the chat that I wanted to ask real quick. Um, Kristen, can you give a rundown of some of the most common antivenom costs real quick? Sure. Uh, South African polyvalent, which is what you would need for your gaboons, your African cobras, mambas, cuff adders, things like that, is um, I think the most recent price we paid was $386 a vial. Um, and and that, that doesn't include shipping. So, and, and on average, I mean, how many vials would you need for a serious bite? Ten vials, so that's a significant cost. I'm not trying to say it's free. You know, you're probably looking at, at about four grand to to you know import it and get it here. But I'm pretty sure that most people who are seriously keeping snakes have four grand in cages. Easy. Also, Absolutely. your life, my life is worth yes. four grand. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, now. High antivenom, uh, you can get monovalence, which are specific for one species, or you can get, they now make a mono, or excuse me, they make a hemato and a neuropolyvalent. So this would be Asian cobras um, and and crates, kings would be like the the neuropolyvalent, and then the hemato would be like um, Dina Kistradon, the sharp-nosed vipers, the uh, Malayan pit vipers, uh, hangy, bitey things like the, the Tremerosaurus, uh, Russells, um, and the the monovalents are forty dollars a vial, and the polyvalents are sixty. So that's way cheaper. Way, 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 yeah. way cheaper. Um, the uh, Costa Rican uh, polyvalent, the Instituto Clodomero Picado, 
makes uh, polyvalent that would be good for your Central American uh, snakes, so your, your Central American rattlesnakes, uh, bothrops, things like that, um, bushmasters. Uh, that is, I haven't ordered from it in a while because we tend to use a bio clone, but the last time I ordered it was somewhere around $100 a vial. It's probably more than that now because it's been a while, but say it's $200 a vial. That's still, again, not a huge amount of money. Um, so now the Australian stuff is more expensive, but it's, a bigger vial. but it's a larger vial, so you don't need as many vials. Um, like you could stock, you know, two or five vials of, of whichever one you're looking at and probably be fine because the vials are more, there's more, uh, the volume is more. Most, so, vi most vials are 10 ml. Yeah, and, and Australian and is like 40 and 50. 40, yeah, oh, 40. wow, much bigger. Yeah, so it's a big difference. So, and what's the shelf life on those? It's three to five years. Okay. Uh, now, it is possible sometimes to get screwed and you get one that's due to expire soon as opposed to getting it at the beginning of the production cycle. But in my experience, the manufacturers will tell you the expiration dates if you ask first. So you can make a decision and, and choose to wait to get something. We just imported Australian uh, with Reptile Gardens um, earlier this year. And one of them uh, has a, had a bad expiration date, so we just opted to get much less of that one. And then next time it comes around, we'll try again. Um, so, you know, and the shelf they life, won't tell you. The shelf life for the Thai stuff is well beyond. What yeah, the, pretty it? much all of them are, are going to be, still have potency past their expiration date. We tested, we tested Thai anti-serum that was 50 years old and it had efficacy. Yeah. And the FDA is actually working on an expired antivalum project right now, uh, trying to determine how, how much efficacy is lost over time. Now, we cannot ever suggest to someone that they use expired antivenom, but I would use it on myself. I have used it. And we have time. used it um, because we you know, know that there is still good efficacy even after the date. So, um, so yeah. Okay. Do you have more questions? Cool. Um different topic but what is your personal collection like currently don't have a personal we, collection. we we live at the zoo really our <laughs> property is exactly adjacent to the zoo so there we don't our personal collection consists of three cats <laughs> when, I, when i was when i was younger and when i was doing stuff breeding stuff to sell i was breeding occidentalis boa constrictor occidentalis back in the 70s and 80s and you know, a lot of the lines, John Max line, a lot of those lines came from me. So I had ten bloodlines at one point, and I now have two Occidentalis only because I decided I couldn't get rid of all of them because <laughs> I had them for so long. And I got them from Pet Farm, and they were considered garbage boas because they were black, and they didn't like them. <laughs> So they sold them to me cheap. How times have changed. How times have changed. <laughs> yeah. The first time I bred them, I think the baby sold for over a thousand, two thousand dollars a baby. So it was one of the first times they'd been bred. There are a couple animals here that I guess are here because of me. So we have some Dumeril's boas. Um, I have a random green tree python that uh, the interns I make them take care of it, which is kind of fun because he's not very friendly. Uh, that counts. That's good training. Yeah. <laughs> They're, they're ones that I have acquired that we do use for zoo purposes, but and they're zoo animals, but they're they're here because because I like them. I don't think we would have all the zoo rooms if I didn't like them. <laughs> and we uh, 
Well, like the liar snake, I guess, yeah. is kind of well, my pet. Well, as, <laughs> as far as the zoo itself, we have yeah. over 100 species. Yeah. So, you know, and it, it we don't go looking for animals. They somehow come to us. Yeah, they know. They yeah. know. If you yeah. keep snakes, they yeah, show somebody, up. Somebody, yeah. Make. I mean, <laughs> we, have, we have other zoos that if they have surplus, they ask us if we want it, and we yeah. do the same for them. Um, you know, it... Yeah, we Animal's just end up. Yeah, we. Sky, we like. I haven't bought anything in a long time. So you know, in the old days, we just gave stuff to each other. So <laughs> that was the dinosaur in me, because we were a very small community back then. You know, like Carl Cofield. I mean, I tromped around with uh, Bob Zappalotti and all those guys down in in the Okatee and stuff. And Carl Cofield said it best. He said, you know, if it becomes too popular, it it loses something. And the same thing when I go back to martial arts, when everybody's a black belt, you know, a black belt doesn't mean anything anymore. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's been something that seems like comes up over and over because we have lots of old school guys on and kind of the, apart from going from like a hobby where you trade everything and yeah. business where there's actually money involved. Yeah. I think it just be a big transition. Well, I think the, the thing about it is, is I tell everybody that comes through here that, you guys are evolving as we speak. You're changing the business. You're changing how things are done. A lot of good things are happening. I mean, we have much better husbandry than the old days, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's part, but you're also walking in the footsteps of people who started without an internet, started without even any, hardly any books except Dittmers. You guys know who Raymond L. Dittmers is? I do. She won't. I don't. I read, I read Bushmaster, the book about him. Okay, well, I read the original autobiography about him that was written that in 1940. Wow. He, he was one of the first Venom research people that worked with the old Wyatt company to make the first anti-serum. He started getting snakes from Trinidad when he was a kid. And he got his first Bushmaster when he was 17. And I think it was in an apartment in New York City. <laughs> Yes, it was. It was. He lived in a, like a do the old duplex things, and he he used to go around to. Yeah, All right, I'm gonna see if I can show this. Why is this not there? Okay, can you guys see that? Yes. Yep. That's the original book that I read when I was a kid, and then and also the librarian gave that book to me. Yeah, because he checked it out. Because I checked it out so much, she gave it to me. Nobody else checked it out. Probably one of like three people, maybe yeah, checking it out. Yeah. <laughs> here's, here's one of actually Dittmer's books. So, mm. you know, people who are interested should go and, and check them out. And, and, you know, a lot of it's changed, but you, yeah. it, but it, it's but neat to, to see the old. The old stuff. I mean, he did. He you was preaching one. to the choir right now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he. Uh, what did you? What did you just get? The snake and the. Uh, well, oh, snakes and snake hunting, which is very expensive oh, yeah, now. Yeah. And, yeah, that's and, um, I'm reading Keeper and the Kept right now, okay. and then she's mad at me because. <laughs> for Christmas, what are the things he asked for? Three snake books, and like one of them was from like 1940 and and or something. And they're all expensive. Because, they're all so yeah. expensive because they're oh, so yeah. old. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, go to the, go to bookstores and just look because unless the hurt people have shown up or it's a hurt book person selling it, you can get them cheap. Yeah, I got a I got a book from eighteen twenty five for fifty cents. My mom got it at a garage. What Stegner's book on 
venomous snakes of North America. It has all the taxonomies really horrible, but I mean, <laughs> it's from the 1800s. But I mean, it's it's an old book and it's neat. I like library. I like old stuff like that. I like new stuff too. I like reading. I didn't realize that we use this as a mouse pad, but it's a field book of North American snakes by Raymond L. Dittmars. <laughs> yeah, that's Got that one too. Nice. <laughs> How old is that one? Uh, this is like 1929 or something yeah, ridiculous. <laughs> well, he did the first. He did the first Bronx Zoo's um, reptile exhibit. Yeah. So he did. He he slept in a um, old train carrier thing with a king cobra that he was bringing back from Chicago. To Absolutely me. not. <laughs> <laughs> he had to keep it warm. Well, yeah, you could keep her body warm in a different area than keeping <laughs> the snake warm, right? Hey, man, they got dropped on their heads back then, too. <laughs> I mean, what is it about, I mean, that attracts you to, I mean, venomous animals or just, I mean, snakes in general, but venomous venom, animals particularly? Venom to me is, it, it, this gets edited out of every time I talk to the media. I'm not really well, sure. There's why. no editing We're not the here. Media. There's, there's no, no editing I here. But what it, what it is is um, when most people think of venom, they think of death. When mm -hmm. I think of venom, I think of life. And the reason for that is we found drugs that are already on the market that were originally came from snake venom. One of the most one most people will know about are um, ACE inhibitors. The ACE inhibitors were made from Bothrops jaraca. The, a lance-headed viper from Brazil. And that drug is now made synthetically and it saves millions of lives. So more people are saved by that drug than will ever die from snake bite. Now that doesn't downplay the need for third world nations for good snake anti-serum availability and education. But that does show that snakes are not just evil to things. They're, right. they're there. And that's what fascinates me. I mean, when I was a kid, I caught a snake and every little doll around me acted like I, you know, I caught King Kong. You know, they, they were like going nuts. And it was, a, it was a stinking water snake, you know. And they were acting like I was going to die and they was, was going to kill everybody. And I, it just fascinated me that adults would be turned to children by such an animal that was so inoffensive. You know, so I started. No, I didn't. I just started reading and picking up books, and I got fascinated by it. And I got, you know, Raymond L. Dittmer's got me interested in venom. Then Dr. Sherman Minton, who um, you, there's a lot of books by Dr. Minton too. Um, he got me interested in venoms even more, and he became a very good friend and a mentor. And then I came friends with some of the guys at the Columbus Zoo, Mike Good and, and Dan Badgley. Mike's passed away since. But, um, you know, Columbus Zoo had a, one of the outstanding reptile collections. Of, and they're now getting back. Oh, we're just showing you our books. No, that's that. This yeah. is, I'm going to pull it back so you can see. This is one of Minton's books. Open it up. Done with his, with his wife as well. Is this the one? I don't know. Yeah, it is. It was just called Venomous Snakes. Venomous yeah. Snakes. Here's yeah, here's the inscription. Oh, we can't read that. Oh, okay. yeah, that's okay. It says, for Jim Harrison, a good friend and a good host. <laughs> yeah, Sherman, what, he, you he must had, have invited him to dinner or something. Yeah, no, I brought him down here. Oh, okay. Yeah, he, he came down a couple times. But we went, 
we the last time he got bit, I have all of his slides from his snake bite talks that he used to do because that was his big thing with snake venoms. And one of his last pictures is of, is of himself when he was writing the uh, book about the snakes of Indiana uh, or the reptiles of Indiana. He went to slap down on a scalopperous lizard, a fence lizard, and he put his hand on a copperhead and it bit him. And I've got the I've got the slides of him trying to take a picture of his finger as it's swelling. He's taking pictures of his own finger. It's a, it's a it's an interesting thing. And then Madge, his wife, told me she goes, "This is the last time he's going to get bit." He was 80 years old when that happened. So it was, wow. he, he was he was an, he was remarkable. There, there are, like I said, you know, anything I've done is pales in the in light of the, the people before because they've done all kinds of stuff, and then there's going to be people in the future that do more. Now, there seems to always be a common thread between, you know, herpetologists or people interested in venom. I mean, they seem to pretty much write down and try to document their bites as much as possible. Have you done the same? Yeah. I've published numerous times. And yeah. videos. If you go to our YouTube channel, you can see the whole video of the Bothrop spike. Not the actual bite, but the treatment of it. I think part Where they, of that is just They're pulling gauze out of my hand. It's two feet <laughs> long. And the first time they pulled it out, I can't take morphine. I, I found out on that bite. I never take any pain meds up until that time. Wait, and wait, wait. Out of the numerous injuries your body has gone through, you have never taken pain med medication? Nope. And then she she thinks this is when I started actually needing or thinking I needed it was when they pulled the gauze out of my hand, my eyes rolled back in my head, and I I it was it was like being tortured. I would have told them I was Bin Laden. I would have told them anything to leave me alone because it hurts so bad. But every time they gave me a little bit of morphine, I'd stop breathing because I was sensitive to morphine. And I'd never taken it before. So the first time they gave it to me, they gave it to me the night of the bite to bring my blood pressure down because there was so much pain. The, the, the uh, fan was blowing on my hand. It felt like somebody driving nails through my hand. So they gave it to me. I got calmed down. My heart rate came down. She decided to go get a hotel room. And they were taking me up to ICU. And they put me in the elevator. And you're supposed to send two nurses or one physician and one nurse with a person who's going to ICU, but they sent one nurse by herself to get on there because they thought I was okay. I coded on the elevator. I stopped breathing. Gosh, that's an episode of Narcan. Me right there. Yeah, she gave me Narcan and it brought me up really fast, but it felt like somebody took a sledgehammer and hit me in the hand. So I bit down and I broke a tooth and I kicked the bottom of the bed off all in one motion. And then some pain specialist came to to start trying to figure out how to give me stuff so I wouldn't go. And he reamed her out for giving it to me like that. And then she was crying and I talked to her later. I said, look, you saved my life. He wasn't there. Should have been a second person there. You did what you had to do. I said, I'm alive. So I'm not gonna, you know, blame her, you know, and he shouldn't he shouldn't have either. But he wasn't there. You know, he didn't know what was gonna happen. So if she had well, to give me. Knew if they had done, they yeah, yeah, they would have. Yeah, well, yeah, they wouldn't have given it to me. But yeah, that, since there's a video on our YouTube, there's three, three parts to the bite, and you can hear her telling me to breathe because they're giving me a little tiny bit of Dilat to try to keep to pull the gauze out. Dilaudid. Dilaudid. Yeah, say. yeah. <laughs> and they they're pulling it out 
little at a time. And the, the, that video was two weeks into the episode because it took wow. three weeks for the, everything to heal back up from the abscesses. And during that time period, they punctured my lung and I ended up yeah. with pneumothorax because they found out that I had sensitivity to daptomycin, an antibiotic. And there were only three people at the time that had been reported to be have this thing where your air sacs collapse. And I happened to be the third one. But luckily, the infectious disease doctor had just read that paper. So he knew what was going yeah, on. It would be. You were very impressed. Yeah, we were very impressed. But then they had a guy come in to scope me to make sure that what was going on to make sure what the damage was. And he was kind of an ass. And um, he uh, wouldn't explain anything to Kristen. But then he did after the uh, surgeon went and reamed him out because the surgeon was a friend of ours. And he said, you know, Kristen and Jim have a little bit of medical background, but you're a doctor. You're supposed to be able to explain to anybody what the procedure is. That's part of your job. And then he got more friendly when he thought he was going to get a malpractice because I had a, I either coughed or I seized or something while they were scoping me, and they punctured my lung. So I woke up with a uh, chest tube. That was when the surgeon was like, we need to discharge you before we kill yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they, they went to send me home. <laughs> oh, my God. Now, I've heard so many stories of people, I mean, who work with Venom or who have sensitivities to any venom or the venom itself. I mean, have you experienced anything like that? I am extremely lucky. He's had one reaction to Thai anti-venom, but it was an older version of the Thai product that he had a reaction to. So he has been really lucky. He hasn't had a reaction to venom at all. He hasn't, aside from that one time, he hasn't had a problem with anti-venom. Shy, on the other hand... I am allergic to spitting cobras, like any part of them. It doesn't matter if I get You know, like they get spit on you, or does it need to be in your bloodstream? No, oh. if it's just in contact with my skin, I'll get hives. I'll get, like, horrible runny nose and, like, eyes and everything. I can't see or breathe very well. Um, so I don't work them really at all anymore. Um, I also have something from either the mulch or cobra poop or something. We're not entirely sure what exactly it is. I can clean animals bedded on cypress mulch that are not cobras. And a lot of times I can work with cobras in the bedding if it's like aspen bedding. But if it's cypress bedding and cobra poop, I have a problem. So most of those now, like I don't actually like like I'll move the animal and then somebody else has to actually do the work to clean the cage because I can't, if I, I could do like one or two cages and then my nose starts running so much that literally all I'm doing is blowing my nose instead of doing any work. It's ridiculous. It's so. very, it's very common for people, zookeepers, private individuals yeah. who work with spitting cobras become sensitized. Yeah. And part of it is because you inhale it. Yeah. The venom is really easily aerosolized if it's dried or if they spray like it might land in some places but some of it is just in the air too we wear a full face mask and when i'm extracting a lot of times i'll actually put vaseline at the tip of my nose so i'm not inhaling anything um the other thing is i when i when i'm extracting i always tilt my chin forward so that they don't spray up underneath the mask because they can do that one of the few times i ever got sprayed i opened up a crate in 1983, I opened up a crate from uh, the old Siam Snake Park in what used to be Siam, which is now Thailand. And that they didn't tell me what they were sending me, 
They just said there was cobras in there. So I didn't have a face mask. I just had my glasses on. And I got sprayed right in the forehead by a snake that was loose in the box. It wasn't even in a bag. Wow. Immediately sprayed me. Rolled. I thought, okay, I'm okay. It rolled down into my eye and my eye almost popped out and just swelled up and just kind of like was hanging off the side a little bit. So it felt like somebody took a cigarette and burnt, burned out my eye. So now when we open any crates from overseas, we always have a face mask on just in case. And, you know, that's, that was a long, long time ago. And it's still, you know, lesson learned. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think you got to learn when you're messing with these I, things. I, and the other thing is, if you see guys who just wear the just goggles, and they I say, I was just talking about that. <laughs> yeah, and, they, and they'd say, oh, my lips are sensitive, or their lips start swelling, they're sensitized. Yeah. And, you know, if you get sensitized, all it would take is to spray into your mouth or into, you know, get bit. You're anaphylactic. You're down. Yeah. And, you know, you if you don't have adrenaline. And once you dead. are sensitized, that's it. You can't yeah. go backwards. Yeah. You know, I mean, I it, I regret, you know, I don't know what exactly I did to make myself sensitive to it because I've always worn, I've never been sprayed in the face by them. But I've gotten it on my skin in other ways. Well, that's and I didn't think that was something I needed to worry about. Cleaning the cage was. Handling the shed skins. Those all expose you to proteins. Yeah. So any of that stuff can lead to an anaphylactic reaction. Yeah. Most of the time when you see people on television, they're just wearing sunglasses. Oh, yeah. All the time. Yeah. You're saying television as a generality, but you're thinking of certain things. Yes. No, I'm thinking yeah. of television. Yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> it, it's, it, it's one thing we tell people if they want a long life working with the animals, they need to take the precautions. Yeah. You know, one one little mistake makes it possible that you may not be able to work with the animal you want to work with the rest of your life. Yeah. Um, speaking of those who work, you've talked a little bit about your staff, but I was wondering, you know, how big they are, what are kind of the qualifications? <laughs> They're really this. small, actually. Cat <laughs> <laughs> is a very yeah. small cat. Yeah. <laughs> Is basically Jim and myself, and we have one full-time keeper who works for us. Her name is is Cat. Um, her full name is Catherine, but she goes by Cat. And, and we're laughing because she is just a petite little person. Yeah, she's <laughs> she is a small person. Uh, I will, then, wait. Let me say something. I will say something very sexist, and I don't usually say this. Women are easy to teach with to work with venomous snakes. They're easier to teach because they don't have the male ego of wanting to show off. You know, like the pictures of uh, some famous icons holding their fingers mm -hmm. like this with a king cobra and the other guy. You know that one of the people down there got bit and ended up almost dying while they were doing that. Mm. So, Very interesting. Yes. There's, so, there's a lot of dark sides. In, in addition, yes. <laughs> you hire a seasonal mm -hmm. keeper for the active season. So in the winter, when everything everything tempered, it's hibernating where there isn't as much work to do here. And so we typically hire someone from like March through October-ish uh, to help us. And, and that's actually worked out pretty well um, the last few years. It kind of is, it's a someone who's kind of new to the zookeeping field. It gives them a good job to have on their resume. And, you know, there have been several of them that I wish we could have kept, but it's better for the zoo's budget to not have a full-time employee through the winter. Um, unfortunately, I would keep somebody if we could. But 
um, it's kind of been nice. And I think it has helped them to move on in their career. So it makes me feel a little better about only hiring them. As a Every season. one of them has gotten a job so, at a majors. There. Yeah. Yeah. So. And then uh, we do have college interns here year round, um, two to four, depending on the season. Uh, in the busier season, obviously, we have more of them. Uh, so in the winter right now, we have two. Um, one, one just started today, actually. <laughs> uh, and uh, they uh, take care of the non-venomous animals, obviously, under supervision, and then uh, help with, you know, the general cleaning and grunt work that's, of course, involved as well. So, and they interact with the public, too. How does cat? Uh, work with the venomous as well, or is it just you two? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah. Yeah, the only thing she really isn't working at this point are mangas and the really largest kings. Um, but pretty much everything else here, she's plenty capable of doing. She's um, She's been here six-ish years, I think, something like that. So very mom and pop kind of feel. <laughs> okay. It is, yeah. Pop. <laughs> <laughs> Just your average mom and pop venom extractions going on. Yeah, no big deal. God, now you're starting to sound like that uh, Ruby Wax. Oh, oh, yeah. No, we're not going to go there. <laughs> now, what? Go ahead. BBC hired me to be a bodyguard for somebody to come to go to a religious snake handling ceremony. Her name was Ruby Wax, and she was whacked. She, I, by the end of the t time, her own producer wanted to kill her. So I knew why they wanted a bodyguard. <laughs> uh, it, it, was, it, was, it was whacked. And then the locals did not want them filming there because it makes the locals look bad with the religious snake handlers and stuff. So we actually went to a gas station and they pulled a car in between two of the girls that worked for the company. And I walked around on the other side and the guy was looking at the girl and he had a hand loaded handgun sitting on his lap and it ended up in the trash can behind him. And uh, the guy didn't even notice I reached in and grabbed it and put it in the trash can because he was looking at them. So, oh, shit. Wow. Yeah. So it's there, you know, the, not everybody accepts what we do, you know, and, and it, you start getting even on the further out on the fringe and everybody's stereotyped. I mean, it's just like Turtle Man, you know? I mean, that stereotyped a lot of people. And and when he got busted, he, and they finally, you know, we caught a lot of flack about that because we were part of the reason he got busted. Um, well, I don't know anything about that. I don't know if we want to elaborate <laughs> to go on down that. that uh, he, so, I mean, we had kind of always said that it was terrible, the show, but uh, he did, there's two things that got him in trouble. The first thing he did was um, he claimed that he caught a cottonmouth in a swimming pool in, in Danville. Danville, Kentucky, which I realize that most people don't know where Danville, Kentucky is, but it is not within 100 miles of the range of cottonmouths in Kentucky. They're only in the western part of Kentucky, and Danville is very central. It's actually a kind of, it's not quite, but it's almost like a suburb of Lexington, it's not a, it's, it's not a like backwoods area at all. And the uh, man should have filed for a range extension. I think. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Well, and I'm pretty sure the snake that he, that he caught, if I'm remembering correctly, was actually like a Florida, Florida cottonmouth cotton anyway. <laughs> like it wasn't even the kind that we have. Um, but the, what started getting him in trouble and the reason that, that we even got involved is 
the next morning after that show aired, we started getting phone calls. And pictures from, on people of, killing all kinds of snakes. Yeah, of people who were freaking out because they thought that there were cottonmouths there all they the time. They closed the public pool and all kinds and of And then stuff. it came out that they had filmed at this public swimming pool and they had not gotten permission from the city to film there. And so the person who had given them permission, who was just like a maintenance guy or something, got in big trouble. And called me up and, and actually called, called me us and was like yelling at us over the phone as if it was our fault. And we're like, dude, you know, you're the one who was an idiot. I really actually didn't say anything bad. I just said it's staged, it's like all TV. Yeah, we just said it was and, not And real. they're not there. What and ended I, up getting him really in trouble was, was two things. He filmed a thing in Texas with bats, which as you may know, are federally protected. And he killed, he killed of some of them. Ooh. And they found out that they were killed because the, the barber shop that he was saving from the bats actually had to call an exterminator to remove the dead bats that they found the day after filming. The second reason he got in trouble was there was a, a supposed escaped zebra <laughs> and he tackled the zebra and like oh bore it to the ground. Well, I mean, you're not, no person is going to tackle an adult zebra and bring it down. They had given the zebra a tranquilizer. Oh. Well, under USDA regulations, you can't give drugs to exotic animals like that without a reason. And tackling them for TV is not a reason. And so he got in trouble through USDA because of that. There, it also came out that he didn't have a permit to be doing anything with captive wildlife in Kentucky, which you have to have a license here to be doing that. So that was what kind of started the ball rolling was us, you know, calling him out about the Danville thing. But but nobody really cares about snakes. What really got him in trouble was when he started doing things to mammals. The cute fuzzy things. There was a, an instance where they had he was taking a raccoon out of a, a attic. And it turns out that he broke the animal's leg. And it, while he was on film, like, pulling it around, it had a broken leg. And the rehabber who got the animal, like, turned him in for that, for animal cruelty as well. And it was a nursing female, and they had the babies separated from the mother for so long that some, I can't remember if they died they or if they, they did. So they, you know, they basically tortured those to death by keeping them away from the female for so long. So there was some really bad stuff that the whole production crew was involved with there. And, and all of them need to get in trouble. Someone needed to do their due diligence. Oh, yeah. no right. Like, what's going on? Yeah. No, I mean, it was ridiculous. Like, there's no, and all of that stuff they could have filmed, maybe not the zebra part, but everything else they could have done in a way that was decent to the animals and following the law and stay in the range yeah <laughs> i mean and so yeah i mean once you see once you've seen a show being filmed from the other side it's very easy to watch a show and pick out all of the pick parts it apart and all of the parts where you can see like oh well they sent the snake in from this side okay. and you can tell what's happening and that's it's fine you mm -hmm. know well, you know, but it, it, they need it, to acknowledge it's that fake. the thing is, it, it's kind of like it seduces people. The fame and all that stuff seduces them, and they they get into it. One of my students, he um, did some stunts. He did stunts in the later reincarnation of the Kung Fu show in the '90s, but he also did some really bad B-grade karate movies as a stunt. <laughs> he still, at this point, is trying to get back to that. 
because he no, it's no longer a thing. He's not getting jobs doing stunts for that kind of stuff, but he still wants to get back to that because he, he got enthralled with it. He got seduced by it. He liked the attention he gave him. So he wants to get back to it. And it's kind of sad, you know, to, to see him still trying to get back to the old days. You know, live in the, live in the moment, you know, it's here and it's now, it's what you got. Absolutely. I don't think there's anything to keep you in the moment, like milking a couple hundred snakes. <laughs> well, actually, well, I mean, obviously you have attention on you all the time, just for the very fact you do what you do. So, I mean, how do you deal with that? And how do you kind of step around? Yeah, my dad told me the best thing that ever, he, he, he said, you never read your press clippings and you never take them seriously. So you don't take yourself seriously. Because you start thinking you're something you're not, you're dangerous to everybody around you. Okay. So I, I don't, I, you know, if somebody tells me I'm great, I tell them thanks, but I don't believe that. You know, I am, I am me. I do what I do. Do you believe you're lucky? Because you surely are. <laughs> nah, if I was lucky, I would never get bit. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I, I think I think I'm prepared. I think the physicians that I have around me, Kristen and everybody else, that's the only reason I'm alive. It isn't because of me. It's nothing special about me. It's because the people around me know what to do in an emergency and they take care of it. Right. One of our friends um, in the chat is thinking about um, starting to keep venomous. And he said, how do you start that conversation with the physician with out seeming like seeming crazy. <laughs> yeah. Well, the place, the place to start is your personal physician. So, you know, go to your, you know, whoever your family doctor is and, and you should have at least a little bit of a relationship with that person and make an appointment to do it. If you have to pay for an office visit, if you have to, to do it, because it is that important and say, look, you know, I know this may seem crazy to you, but here's my, you know, this is a, a thing, you know, you can explain it. I think most lay people or non-reptile people can understand it if you kind of compare it to keeping fish, which we know it's not like keeping fish, but it's a way <laughs> to help them understand why you would want an animal you can't interact with. And, you know, you can kind of explain that and, and say, like, look, I really want to do it responsibly. And part of that is having a plan if I get bitten. Can you, you know, do you have a colleague who works in emergency medicine here? Or can you recommend you know, a hospital that, that would be the place to go and then use that contact to contact the emergency room people. And you might have to do it by sending like an official letter and then follow up with a phone call. It's not going to be like a Facebook message. You know, you need to, to go through kind of the, the old style traditional channels to do that. So it's official. And, you know, I think, you know, in our experience anyway, physicians think weird injuries are interesting <laughs> you know that's their thing way, yeah. way more interesting than a heart attack when you come in with a snake bite now i'm not suggesting that you know you, you get bitten in order to pique their interest but what i'm saying is it's an interesting different approach and if you approach it professionally and if you go to meet with them don't wear a ripped up metallica t-shirt <laughs> you know wear a button-down shirt and, and pants, you know, go in. And I, I mean, I'm sorry if I'm coming across as patronizing because I have no idea who it is that's asking, but I'm, act like a professional and you're going to get treated like one. 
act like a crazy person, you're going to get treated like one. So, I, but I would go through your personal physician first and, and ask them for their help. And I would think if it's somebody who's worth your time, they're going to say, oh yeah, you know, I, some guy I went to med school with is, you know, now an ER doctor or, or you know, my, my friend or, you know, my colleague somehow they you know, doctors know each other. They're going to know who to recommend. And that, that's where I would start. Um, and then, now also, I mean, is there merit to maybe like finding a mentor or someone who works with these animals as well? There is, but gosh, there's so many idiots out there that it's hard to know who to get as your mentor. If your mentor is free handling after they've had a, a fifth of vodka, then they are they are not a good mentor. If they're free you know? handling at all. If they're free handling at all, go away. Um, but if you can find somebody who's been around a long time, who's been low key. Who's, who doesn't, who's not out there, you know, showing off on camera all the time, who you really, you know, maybe you only know about them because you know them through other reptile folks, you know, that are quiet about it. Those are the people that I would say, okay, that person is maybe a reasonable mentor. Um, the other thing I would say is, uh, you know, in many states it's illegal or there are regulations now. You are going to seem like a crazy person if you're breaking the law to do it. Yeah. And whether or not the law is fair, I'm not making a comment on that because some of them are silly. Yeah. But you have to follow the law if you want to be taken and seriously. And it's not just state. It's county, Yeah, you got to check your real you local legislation the, yeah. too. And they should tell you. You should be able to call up the governmental offices and say, I have a question about, you know, is it legal to have these animals? And you don't have to say like, hey, I just imported a gaboon. Yes, it is, but you're about to be on a list. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you <laughs> You know, you need to, you can approach it in a way that, that you're not giving yourself away. You know, you can say like, hey, I, I'm curious to know, I'm doing a project for school about local regulations. Is Are these things legal? And, and throw in lions and, and, you know, chimpanzees and stuff too. I mean, you can, you know, you don't have to say like, here's my address. To be honest, from a law enforcement standpoint, if somebody approaches you and asks you about the law and you tell them about the law, you have a better chance of being on the good side of the law enforcement person. Yeah, that's true. You know, if you go in with an adversarial thing where, you know, ah, you know, you punk, you, you know, whatever, on either side, it's going to be a bad turnout for everybody. Yeah. So you need to go in with a positive attitude and just be upfront and say, look, this is what I want to want to try to do. This is the reason why I want to do it. And you give a good reason. You've got to have a reason. You can't just say, I just want to have an aquarium with a rattlesnake in it. You know, that, that's not a reason. And that's not conservation. You know, an animal in a cage is not conservation. An animal in a cage is an animal in a cage. Absolutely. Yeah, there's going to be more to it. Yeah. <laughs> now, you had said in the beginning, and since we totally went a thousand different directions and forgot to hit on it that you talked a little bit about conservation that you guys are working in conservation <laughs> that happened about five minutes into the interview now it's like two hours in and we're yeah, done to it huh? <laughs> uh i don't even remember what we were saying i think i just said like what we did or what we were doing a little bit and then that was, we kind of moved on from there i there are some people in the reptile industry that are doing some amazing stuff for conservation and are putting their money where their mouth Arden. is. Um, I, well, I was going to say Type Park, um, yeah, Ty Park, you know, just as like a shiny example, because I think everybody's familiar with him. Um, but there are other people doing it on the scale that they can afford. It is important to 
I, th I think one of the most important things is to try to find a way in which your conservation efforts can have a real impact. It's really easy to do a school program and show kids snakes and you feel awesome about it because the kids get excited and it's great. And I'm not saying there isn't a place for that. We do that too. But it's also important to try to message in a way that the kids understand more than snakes are cool. Like it's great that they think snakes are cool, but if, if that were enough, we wouldn't have the conservation problems that we do right now. We need them to understand that in order for there to be snakes, there has to be habitat for them. We have to not kill everyone we see. We have to also conserve other things in order to have the snakes there or whatever their animal of interest is. And, and you know, those messages are not easy and I don't have the answer on how to get them across. But if we don't start talking about climate change and real, you know, population control and really unfun conservation messages, we have to figure out a way to talk about those things or we're all going to, you know, go to hell anyway. I mean, like, we have to solve the problems or, or Jeez, there isn't going to be anything left. Yeah. I, I'm not very cheery about it right now. <laughs> <I'm> sorry. <laughs> but it's true. I got, I got a I have a simple thing that I tell kids. <laughs> you build a house, you put a foundation down to the house. You chip away at the foundation, the house falls in on top of you. Nature is a house. So every time you take a little bit away, you're chipping away at that foundation. Yeah. So you need yeah, to have all the, to, to you know, frame at, it first for younger people. And and one of the things I notice when I go to different countries, and something Sherman Minton pointed out, he treated snake bite, but he treated what killed more people than anything else in the world in third world nations, and that was diarrhea. Clean water. We don't have clean water, you're dead. You know, we ain't gonna get Gatorade, uh, you know, and everything without water. So <laughs> it isn't, it's not going to happen. We're having a big problem here because of the deregulation of the coal industry, and they're starting to dump stuff straight into the streams. Yeah, and it's, which wasn't it, happening for a while. Which wasn't now. happening for a while. And it's exactly. it's definitely having an impact on the amphibians. Amphibians go, reptiles go, next go, Birds. then us, <laughs> yeah. then, you know, it's just kind of like domino effect. So, yeah. How does it, what do you do in, in a world that seems right? like it's only it's going in big, one direction? It seems such like a terrible big thing. <laughs> like whole alcohol? Yeah, no. <laughs> Now, what I told her is that we go all the time, we go through cycles and we go through bad times, good times. You have to take the moment, you have to live in it, and you have to do what you can do. That's all you can do. Yeah. I mean, you, I can't, you cannot change the world as such, but you can try to be a positive impact on the world. Right. I, I think for me also, that's why I tried to start learning about being more effective is I, I, for me personally, like if I feel like I'm not doing enough, I have to try to do something else or try to, to change what I'm doing to make, you know, I feel like I'm not having enough of an impact. I need to try to change what I'm doing to have a better impact. So I guess, you know, that was, that's the way that I deal with it. I mean, you, you know, Jim's right, but the, over the last year, I've really had a hard time staying positive about it because it seems like there are so many things. I, I can't say some things on, on camera, but I have, I have, passed with certain things and i i saw what's happening now coming so through my bodyguard work and everything else i had i had and through mma i have a friend who lost his whole the affliction group lost all of it because of a certain person because he bankrupted them so 
Yeah, you know, I, I positive too. Um, yeah. I don't know. Now, I mean, it seems like you guys, I don't even know where Slade, Kentucky is, to be honest. It seems like a place where people may need um, some educating on these topics. Yeah. Thanks for losing them. Yeah. You guys still there? Yeah. Yeah. Can you hear us? Yeah. Can you hear us? Oh, it's trying to come back. Yeah. Oh, we can hear you. you okay. Can hear us? Oh, okay. You. Slate so, where is Slate, Slate Kentucky? <laughs> yeah, Slate is is near Natural Bridge State Resort Park, which was one of the first resort parks in the state of Kentucky. It's they about used, fifty miles southeast of Lexington. Yeah, they used to bring trains down from uh, Cincinnati, Ohio, all the way down to here to 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 be a big resort. Yeah. And that's why I ended up here because I had relatives down in this area. My dad was, was asking about education. Okay. He was saying, how do you educate? Oh, you're trying, trying to keep, to keep him on track there. Yeah. Well, they, my dad, my dad was a school teacher. So, you know, he always said that try to find something that people will be familiar with or something that they enjoy. And that's where you catch them. He was also a baseball coach. So he's actually in the Amateur Baseball Hall of Fame as a coach and a player. And he played semi-pro baseball. And we traveled through the South when I was a kid, him playing ball. And when I was a kid, I was doing all kinds of stupid stuff, you know, with animals. I never played baseball. I was no good at it. <laughs> I mean, there definitely is a need for better science education in Everywhere. I think the entire country. Yeah. I mean, I think places like Kentucky, sometimes you, you hear you hear about them and it's like, oh, you know, they don't know anything or they're ignorant there. But, you know, it's interesting. I think the, the more rural kids that we talk to uh, many times have a better understanding of why snakes are important than the kids in a city do because they see them out and about. They, they tend to have a more, yeah, a more... Um, I don't know, like a live and let live philosophy, especially recently. I will say that's that's one thing that has been a positive that I've seen is there there are less kids talking about killing snakes, especially in rural areas, than there used to be. I think that sometimes in the the more affluent, um, you know, Sterile. urban areas, you get you tend to get the science message that's backwards in the other way. That's mm -hmm. the like crunchy anti-vax weirdos and then on the you know in the rural side sometimes you get the like let's kill everything you know climate change is a hoax people so you know both of those sides exist but i don't think it's exclusive to to just a rural area in the south i mean that you know there there are that attitude does exist here but i also think there are there are especially the kids that, that are actually pretty aware of what the snakes do and they're you know they're not dumb they're just looking at things from a different perspective. I'm going to take my chupacabra. Yeah, you're um, running out of steam. Yeah. <laughs> I, got, I have to take, I have to take um, some stuff for my colon and my um, spleen that's made out of bovine blood. So I call, I call it, uh, I'm a chupacabra. I, I turned into a vampire. And I have to mix it. They said mix it in applesauce, but I'm not allowed to eat applesauce. So I had a couple of years ago, I got C. diff after a surgery and it damaged my colon. So I can't eat large amounts of food. I have to eat certain things and stuff. And How this many is, fully functioning organs do you have currently? 
Probably none. None, probably <laughs> none. I mean, I, I probably have CTE. I mean, I, I never got knocked out in the ring, but I when I was high jumping, I missed the porta pit and knocked myself out because uh, I used to do the old Fosbury flop. And my coach put the porta pit inside a gymnasium so that when I hit the corner, I didn't bounce onto the ground. I bounced into gymnasium steps. So that, that knocked me out good. So then a cat knocked me out. So I had a couple of concussions. But then a friend of mine said that multiple strikes to the head, you don't have to be knocked out to get to get CTE. Right. So, so yeah. But, but yeah, I, I have to go take, take that med because it's my gut starts eating me up. So... Any other I have one last question. Speaking of CTE and the studies we have on it, kind of not speaking of CTE, is this something you want to do till the end? Or do you see... Do you plan to retire one yeah, day? And... Yeah. That's a question a lot of people say. They ask me if I'm going to retire. I'm going to retire when I die. Okay. You know, if, 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 I, if, if I cannot functionally move and, and do what I need to do, I, I, I'm not sure I want to be here. You know, I don't, I, I, my mentality is that I always move forward. I can't move back. And, you know, I'm, I'm 60 years old and I still, I still get in the you know, play around at kickboxing and stuff. I'm not anywhere like I was, but, you know, I, I'm not going to stop that either. You know, back when it was really common for people to retire, you know, I think it's becoming less common, at least for people to retire as early as they used to. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of those people go home and proceed to have a heart attack and die not too long afterwards. And it's actually probably healthier to keep working, at least in some capacity. And, you know, we're lucky enough to do something that we like and that we believe in. And so it's not, I mean, yes, it's work, but it's not the same as going to an office job right. until you're 70 or 80. You know, you're, we're still doing something that we want to do. So, yeah, I don't I don't really, I think I'd be well, bored if I retired. <laughs> I'd go find a job. My, my dad, <laughs> when my dad passed away, he was he was coaching the pitchers at Sinclair College in Dayton, Ohio. Yeah. He, he retired to coach. Mm. <laughs> he never retired. He just kept going until he passed away. And now, what do you hope to happen with the Kentucky Reptiles, you say, in 60 years or however long <laughs> you guys aren't around? I, I, I to, I, I, theoretically, I'm hoping with DNA and, and uh, genetics and stuff that eventually extractions will be extinct and then we won't need to do them. And then, you know, I would like to have a nature center or some kind of education facility here you know, if it's possible, if anybody wants to keep running it afterwards. Yeah. So, you know, it, 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 I haven't, you know, people ask me all the time if I, am, am I training somebody to extract them to take my place? I'm like, no, I'm trying to make it so that we don't have to don't extract have to. it. All right. That's a great thing to end it on. Now, if you guys have any last things you want to get out there, any way people get in touch with you, any way to look up the zoo, if they're traveling and want to hang out. Yeah. If people want to learn more about us, you know, we have a website, which is kyreptilesu.org. And we have a Facebook page. Um, We have a YouTube channel that we haven't been putting a lot on there. It's kind of hard enough for me to keep up with with Facebook. So most of the videos and stuff we post have been on Facebook recently. We have a Twitter. It's not super active, but we do have a Twitter too. Um, and uh, if people want to visit the zoo, 
we the hours are on the website but during the winter we're we don't have regular open hours because there's not a lot of tourism down here in the winter but we will open by appointment at any time as long as we're here and able to do so so and it doesn't have to be a giant group or anything we'll open for for anyone who'd like to come we're here working anyway so it's usually able to be managed so people can message us or call or email if they want to do that so since awesome. it's summer. <laughs> And now as far as us, great. If anyone wants to reach out to us, you can find us at Port City Pythons on Instagram, Port City Pythons on YouTube, Port City Pythons on Facebook. Uh, check Port out City our Pythons on the dot coms. Well, that's what I was going to say. If you want to check out our website, Ooh. I was going to say that. Obviously, we said in the beginning of this podcast that we are not shipping out snakes for a while, but we have T-shirts and cell phone stuff. cases and other random stuff on yeah. there um yeah i guess that's it thanks we for will listening. see you guys thanks next watching. week thank you so much to kristen and jim for hanging out with us for two hours thanks for having us <laughs> thanks so much have a good night all, all right. right bye